Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. again and welcome to another episode of Blockhead. Today we have part one of our two-part interview with Rubin Award-winning syndicated cartoonist Terry Liebenson, whose comic strip The Pajama Diaries you can find in a newspaper near you. She's also the author of a number of children's books or tween books, young adult fiction books, including the newly published Just Jamie, which is out on May 7th and available in all of your independent local bookstores, as well as anywhere that good books are sold. She's written several other books as well, Invisible Emmy and Positively Izzy, and uh, all of them are terrific. I encourage you to look for them everywhere. So this is kind of exciting to sit down with a Rubin Award-winning cartoonist. That's a new one for me. Uh, We know Will Henry was nominated for Rubin, and we hope he wins, but um, this is the first time I've ever had a chance, I think, to talk to a Rubin Award winner, so that's kind of exciting. Betsy and I are Betsy Roly-Poly, my cat and co-host, is up here with me, right, Betsy? Right? Here you are. There she is. And uh, she's purring contentedly in the background. Betsy's had a good day. She's had dinner and she had breakfast and, and she's well-fed and content. And she'll probably come down and visit us again a little later in the evening because that's, that's her habit is to come down around 7 or 8 o'clock and uh, chill with us for a little while before she comes back upstairs. She's one of those kind of cats. Here at the house, we've had uh, kind of, uh, you know, the the springtime illness, right? Except this time, Deb has had, my wife Deb, has had more than that springtime cold that we all tend to loathe and yet never seem to get away from. This time, Deb got pneumonia in uh, a couple weeks ago. So we've been dealing with that for the last couple of weeks, and she's been really really under the weather and really struggling uh, with it. But she's doing okay. She's doing okay now and and, uh, turned the corner, I think. Uh, I think this morning she turned a corner. It's been a couple of weeks. Uh, You know, she's she's doing better. Last week we both had it. Uh, I didn't have pneumonia. I had a bad cold. And um, the two of us, you can imagine, you know, the two of us both uh, under the weather at the same time. Uh, Hers was a great deal more severe than mine, that's for sure. Thankfully, I was able to you know, function while we were both sick. So anyway, that's what we've been dealing with the last couple of weeks. And uh, hopefully, you know, just as uh, the lilacs begin to bloom, we'll start to uh, be on our feet again and uh, all will be well. I know she's getting excited because today we had to go out and buy, we heat the house with these things called pellet stoves and we had to go out and buy wood pellets today. And she sat in the car, wanted to go for a ride, but, uh, you know, the same place we buy the wood pellets is where the nursery is. And so, uh, you know, checking it out, seeing some of the flowers from a distance, it's it's a motivation. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we're both getting a little excited about, about springtime and all of the stuff that comes with it. So... Uh, without further ado, let's let's get into our interview with Terry Liebenson. We talk about a whole pile of stuff, and I think you're going to find it interesting. So uh, here we go. 
Terry and I in discussion. Hi, Terry. Hi. Welcome to Blockhead. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, it's exciting to have you here. I'm really thrilled. I love your work. And it's kind of an exciting time for you because you have a new book coming out this week. I do. I do. And what's that called? It's called Just Jamie. Just and yeah, I'm I'm excited about it. It uh, it's one that kind of flowed right out of my brain. <laughs> and, really? Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, which doesn't happen all the time. So <laughs> the creative process has its ups and downs. But uh, right. I think I recall reading that your first book, Invisible Emmy. I mean, I mean that was you know your first book. So there's all the stuff getting used to working on that. But the second book was a little more difficult to do. Yes, exactly. The second the second book was it was like butting my head against the wall <laughs> for a while um, until I had kind of a breakthrough. Um, I must have rewritten the second one maybe four or five times until wow. it really took and held. <laughs> wow. So yeah, yeah. But um, but once it did, um, I I it it started to really flow much easier by then. And, and then I was, I was pretty proud of it. So uh, it worked out, thankfully. <laughs> well, sometimes, yeah, sometimes it pays off to, you know, struggle against something uh, in the creative process, right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. And I heard that second books can, uh, this is, this is very um, true to form, <laughs> that mm-hmm. uh, they, they tend to be harder than the first because you're up against against a deadline and usually if it's only your second time going um you know you're still you're still sort of a newbie so it's there's a lot of pressure there (laughs) well it's the old um you know they always in rock and roll they're always talking about you know the sophomore jinx right the first Mm -hmm. record you have years to write all those songs and and go into the studio and record them and then the second album is like okay what do we do now and (laughs) you don't have as much time and then you have that pressure because you just like uh, you know uh, a successful band, you had a very successful first book, right? In Invisible Emmy. So following that up, was was there was it daunting to know you had a successful book, and then you were working on the second, the follow up, and people were waiting for it, and and had expectations. It was daunting, but only to an extent. Yeah, def- definitely. Um... Uh, echoed um, the music business, except, of course, publishing. I I guess all the arts kind of go hand in hand. Um, The good thing was I was so busy that I really, you know, I I barely had time to breathe. Um, uh, So as far as worrying was concerned, it was was kept to a, a pretty... A uh, decent minimum, thankfully, because I just didn't really have a lot of time to worry about it. Well, that's and, good. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then there was the publishing date, and, <laughs> and there it was. by then I couldn't really do much about it. So, yeah, but you luckily it did really well. You had to work on it whether you liked it or not. So tell me what Just Jamie, before I start to compliment you about Invisible Emmy, um, which <laughs> I just read recently, tell us a little bit about what Just Jamie's about. Well, Just Jamie is loosely based off of an experience that my older daughter had back in eighth grade. Um, it was it was a pretty brutal year for her. Um, actually, not until the the very end, but but there there were moments leading up to that. Uh, she had this friend group. Um, there was a lot of drama. There was a lot of infighting, and it finally culminated into um, her basically getting dumped <laughs> by a text message. Um, 
by all all these so-called friends and um, yeah it was it was a very problematic grouping uh, to begin with Um, I mean there's nothing nothing wrong with the girls per se or anything like that it was it was just um, it was just I think a, a bad mix and you know as far as personalities went and luckily, um, she bounced back and mm-hmm. uh, it really, it really startlingly, <laughs> startlingly did not take too long mm-hmm. afterwards. Um, she was uh, sort of embraced back into an old friend group from elementary school and they pretty much stayed friends. And then she, of course, made new friends. And now she's in college and everything is cool. Everything's good. <laughs> but it was but it was a tough time. And, you know, there's so many moments like that for so many kids in middle school. So I thought, you know, it's interesting because um, when you have conflicts like that, especially in middle school, of course, there are always different sides to the story Mm -hmm. and even though I knew my daughter's side and I knew it was horrible (laughs) um, you know of of course there were reasons behind that and I thought it would be really interesting to have um, an event like that take place in this story um, Mm -hmm. and show both sides of Mm -hmm. it uh, from both the the excluders side as well as the excludees side That's pretty so tough. So that's what it is, yeah, because each of these books um, sort of offers a glimpse into um, uh, viewpoints of each of two different characters, mm-hmm. and they're told stylistic, stylistically differently as well. And Jamie's no different, um, but it's it's a little different just in the sense that um, it really revolves more around a really, you know, big event in their lives. Well, it's really interesting that you're trying to take it on from both points of view. I'm thinking about it both in terms of, uh, you know, as a parent, uh, I'm not a parent, but as a teacher. And then from your point of view as a parent, I think one of the lessons to teach kids and uh, an important one and to teach adults too, right, is, is this idea that there are both sides to any story. And trying to distance yourself and step back and and understand the situation, the context, and and how points of view might differ uh, mm-hmm. on any given issue uh, is a very difficult thing to do. It's one of the challenges in life, no matter what situation you find yourself in, and it's a it's a constant challenge. But I think sometimes we forget, you know, to pass that that story along. I know that, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, in our current political climate, uh, that's we we encounter that all the time. Yeah, I was just I was just thinking about that. It's it's a perfect parallel. Um, definitely adults should take a lesson from that. I think maybe adults should read this book as well. <laughs> well, speaking uh, of that, uh, as an adult, I have a couple questions. Um, sure. And, and it's easy. They're all like jumping up on, on, on me at once. But one of the first things it, 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 that I wanted to say is I read Invisible Emmy. I haven't read uh, the second book. Was that positive? What's that one called? Positively is Izzy? Is it? Yes. Yes. Oh, Positively Positively. Izzy. Okay. So I haven't read the second one, but I read the first one and I loved it. I have to tell you, you know, and I'm, uh, as I said, at the end of my last podcast, I'm, I'm an older guy, you know, (laughs) there's no hair on the top of my head. I got a gray beard and I read it and drank it right up. I thought it was terrific. And the experience, you know, okay, we're, we're talking about how many years, 40 years since 50 years since I was a, a kid that age, but I found it you know, very relatable and accessible and something that didn't feel distant to me at all. Of course, you know, and and I I think that's another phenomenon about getting older is that sometimes your earlier memories are 
are you know, very close to you. But, um, you know, I could relate to it. And again, you know, I think not only girls go through what Emmy went through, but boys. And, and again, as a, you know, a youngster who drew just like uh, Emmy drew, I, I kind of related and understood that book completely. I loved it. I loved the way you used both prose and comics in the book. And and I really encourage people who, if, if they're not familiar, if they're only familiar with Terry's work from put the pajama diaries they you got to go out and buy her books because they're they're terrific and emmy was uh it, it was enthralled you know uh with it i thought it was a wonderful book and uh enjoyed it from this perspective you know of the aged elder so to speak <laughs> well i appreciate that <laughs> <laughs> well yeah I th- you know it's interesting sometimes i mean some of the books today you know are being young adult books are, are, are written by people who are just so wonderful uh, yourself included in that um that you know they reach across all kinds of boundaries and age being one of them getting back to to jamie so how does your daughter feel has your daughter read the book she has not. Neither of my daughters read my books anymore. I, uh, I'm just an author. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah they, they don't read my comics either. It's just, yeah. <laughs> I think they're just so used to, you know, me doing this all the time and they have their own lives and they're kind of well past uh, yeah. the whole graphic novel phase of their lives. <laughs> yeah. It'll yeah. never happen for me, but unfortunately it happened for them. But I would, I would actually like them to read this one because I, I think they would get a lot of, out of this one. So and that's I'm my older curious. one. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious because, you know, as you said, you took it from both sides. Also, it's a personal event in, in, I guess your older child's life, mm-hmm. uh, that, that how she might look at it. Of course, it's been several years. So obviously right. she's distant from it now. Yeah. Uh, she did help me with it a little uh, bit. I mean, she, she definitely knew about the book and about the content and it's, it's very loosely based on what happened to her. So Thankfully, so maybe she doesn't feel quite so right, uh, you know, connected to it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I was, I was pretty careful about that. So <laughs> kids can be so ruthless in, uh, in, in those years, you know, uh, I mean, all the way through high school, they can be ruthless. It's amazing how, what was it Al Cap said about, um, you know, uh, the peanuts characters, um, these kids are meaner to to each other than anybody in Dogpatch ever would have been. And uh, <laughs> and Schultz said the cruelty of children was really his subject initially. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, children can be pretty ruthless with one another. And, and uh, sometimes it's interesting to think about, I mean, on the one hand, I tend to look back and think of myself as an innocent in all of that. But then on the other hand, I know of uh, some very, you know, clear circumstances when I wasn't. And it's, it's embarrassing to, to look back on it, but, um, uh, you know, either teaching kids or raising kids, you confront it all the time. True. And I think sometimes there's a fine line between cruelty and honesty. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I've, I've definitely seen that in Schultz's work and, um, uh, and, Definitely, I, I try and keep that in mind when I'm writing these. Now, Just Jamie comes out on Wednesday, is it? May 1st is Wednesday? Um, actually, it comes out May 7th. May 7th, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm just sure Jamie. what day that is. <laughs> okay, so, well, uh, I guess if the 1st is Wednesday, it should be... Tuesday. Tuesday. Yeah, the next yeah. Tuesday. So, yeah. so that's just great. Wonderful. 
Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, Just Jamie is going to be in your local bookstore uh, on May 7th. So be sure to look for it. And I'm sure it's going to be available online on Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble's websites um, and other fine booksellers as as well, I'm sure. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And then you head out on a tour. I do. I head out soon. I head out uh, right before the book comes out. Um, I think my first school visit is May 6th. So, yeah, yeah. So it's going to keep me busy. So I'm not, you know, fretting too much about publication day. (laughs) Okay. So there's a couple of things. First, you go to schools, right? And so you interact with kids. Is that, is that what you're doing first? Um, I do. I do during, uh, it's, it's actually taking place over the course of most of May. So uh, Uh I'll be, I'll be on the road for, for a while. And Uh um, it's mostly school visits. There are some public events. I have, I actually have all that info on my website so mm-hmm. if anyone wants to see if they'll be in a city where where i am um, terrylevenson.com exactly yes mm-hmm. yes so uh so when you go to a school are you doing an a presentation in an auditorium or are you talking to classes specific classes or how does that work and and what oh. are the kids like Oh, well, the kids are always great. Um, and I, what I usually do is either speak in um, in like a larger setting, like an auditorium or a gym, uh, sometimes a cafeteria, sometimes. There, there have been times when I've spoken to smaller crowds, like in a library or media center, mm-hmm. um, sometimes classrooms. It's anything goes, anything. It really just depends how many kids there are and whether they group everybody together in a big assembly mm-hmm. or or they just have smaller groups. And I'll do maybe anywhere from one to three presentations a day. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, actually, I just, <laughs> I just did one yesterday locally. Uh, really? There were three pre- presentations back to back and very little sleep. And I I really wanted to give, <laughs> give myself a hand afterwards because <laughs> I, I, I must have been operating on pure adrenaline because I, I don't think I forgot anything. <laughs> I kept it together pretty well. Plus, I was presenting to 6th, 7th, and 8th graders one at a time. And I, I rarely present to anyone older than 7th grade. Wow. So, yeah, because usually 8th graders have aged out of these books by then. But it was an 8th grader who wanted me to come in to that school. So I had to present to the class. And they ended up being incredible. Oh, and they asked great questions. And it, it was just a whole... On the whole, it was just a really positive experience. And most of the time it is. I was just thinking, wow, eighth graders have aged out of the books. And I'm wondering about myself because I just. Oh, no. <laughs> I think adults come around again. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice of you to say. Um, the other thing I was thinking about is those those uh, uh, cafeteria presentations must be pretty difficult if they're, you know, in the middle of food fights and things of that. Oh, no. Well, it's actually, it was. Um, Sometimes the cafeteria is sort of double as an assembly room, so it's not actually during lunch. <laughs> oh, thank goodness for so, yeah, that. Unless they're throwing something that was still on the floor. No, they're, they're fine. <laughs> thank goodness for that. Well, well, that's interesting. So how do you do, like, when you're on the road like that, mm-hmm. um, you've got to juggle multiple things. You know, you're on, the tour, on this tour, but you've also got your comic strip that you're working yeah. on. And how the heck does that work out? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, I actually, I thought I was going to be um, doing my strip on the road this time. I had planned for it. I was going to take, well, I'm still taking my, um, I have like a little uh, traveling digital pad. Um, but I 
I ended up being able to do most of that beforehand. I'm still quite behind in the strips, so I have to like really catch up. But at this point, I think I'm going to be writing while uh-huh. I'm on the road. So that's going to be interesting. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, well yeah, because yeah, you, you've got to keep in mind multiple things, right? Yeah. Uh, so you, you, you well, well, again, a couple of questions are hitting me at once. So you drive from, from one show to another, or do you, do you take different kinds of transportation, or is it you on the road by yourself, like a, an old road movie or something? <laughs> no, no. It's, uh, this is actually all over the country, so uh-huh. it's going to be – it's almost a city a day. So wow. I could be hitting airports almost every day. Thank goodness for that. So, so they co- your publisher coughs yes. up money for the air. That's nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm imagining a bus tour, you know. And, and right, the, right. <laughs> bus, you know, and oh gosh, yeah. Yes, Jamie logo on the side of the bus. Yeah, pretty cool actually. It'd be cool if they put that on the side of the plane. Yeah. I don't think they're going to be doing that. <laughs> Yeah, probably not. Uh, but <laughs> so, and then you're working on a, a uh, an iPad or something when you're you're traveling. Uh, it's a tr- it's a Cintiq, so it's okay. um, it's just like yeah. a smaller version. And uh, normally, if I'm if I'm doing art on the road, that's that's what I use. Mm-hmm. But the timing happens to be that I think I have to do writing instead, so I might not be on my using the Cintiq as much as I thought I would be. I'll, okay. I'll probably just be writing on anything I can. <laughs> so what kind of time, uh, what kind of like buffer do you have in terms of your work, in terms of time? Are you, I mean, traditionally it's six weeks, right? So is that, is that uh, where you're at? Do you have six weeks or you, you, is it, is the pressure more than that? <laughs> well, um, I, I was at one point <laughs> I was uh, one, in one of those enviable positions of being six months ahead, wow. of my deadline, which was incredible. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. But then the books came about <laughs> and uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, that threw everything off. And now I've just been inching up closer and closer to each deadline, but I'm still, I think I'm still about three months ahead now, mm-hmm. three or four months ahead if I'm, if I'm lucky, but yeah, but I fall behind very quickly and, and I'm sort of at the mercy of my, um, my book editor's schedule and I never quite know when I'm going to need to um, do edits or, or art. Um, mm-hmm. And then I have to quickly uh, get into that mode. So mm-hmm. it's, it's been interesting. I'm, I'm usually such a regimented person and it's kind of hard to be a little more freewheeling like that, but I'm mm-hmm. just you know, taking it as it goes. And since I love mm-hmm. doing both, you know, I, right. Yeah, just doing are what you, I can. Are you working on a book now? Is now, now that I mean the new one's coming out, but are you also in the middle of working on something something else, the follow up to this one? I am. I'm working on the fourth book and Amazing. I'll also have a fifth book for next year. So I'm on kind of a yearly year uh, book a year schedule uh-huh. so far. Right, yeah. So th- that's and that's in your is that's contractual or is that just some a pressure you put on yourself? Yeah, it's contractual, all oh. contractual, <laughs> but it's, right. it's good because I kind of need that pressure and I, I like having deadlines. I'm one of those odd people who actually thrive on deadlines, which is probably why I'm doing the uh, newspaper cartoon thing. <laughs> sure. Well, exactly. Yeah. And, and you know that, I mean, I remember now talking to Will Henry and Will was talking about parameters and the parameters of, uh, you know, working for the newspaper and how he liked to work with parameters. And I think that's it's, if you're going to be in this business, that's you've got to kind of thrive in those conditions to a certain degree. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's something you've got to be able to handle and juggle. And, and you're project oriented, you know, in comic strip, it's one comic strip after another. With a book, it's, you know, one line after another or page after another. And um, 
so it's it's uh, it's the kind of structure that is very helpful, you know, for creative people who might otherwise be all over the place, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm pretty type A to begin with, mm-hmm. so um, it it definitely fits with my personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think whether I was, whether I I was in a creative if whether or not I would be in a creative field, I think no matter what, I need some kind of regimen. So it, it definitely helps. It definitely helps. So going between, is it, do you find it hard or, or difficult at all to switch between the kind of thinking that's involved in, uh, in writing for the comic strip and then writing for the book? Because it is two different modes of thinking, you know, one is short form and, you know, and then the other of course is more expansive and, and, um, you know, I know personally when I get into the one form, I find it very difficult to switch gears. So how does that feel for you? Yeah, I agree uh, wholeheartedly about that. Um, I definitely have a hard time switching gears. Um, I work pretty pretty much in a linear fashion. So mm-hmm. um, I even break it up that way with a comic strip. Um, I never do both art and writing in a single day. Mm-hmm. I always write for about a week to get a month's worth of strips. And okay. then and then I do all the art at once afterwards, which takes about maybe two weeks or so. Right. And then, so I, I almost work in a monthly uh, based on a monthly basis instead of a weekly or daily. Uh-huh. Um, so, and it's the same with the books. So if I'm working on the books, I can't be working on the strips at the same time. It's, it's really hard for me to suddenly switch gears that way. So yeah. I, I try and plan it out when I can. <laughs> uh-huh. So when you sit down to write for the book, do you have the larger story arc all worked out or is it kind of flexible? And then you kind of, you know, vary it as you go and you work chapter to chapter or how does that work? Well, it's it's actually varied. It's been kind of a big experiment for me. Um, I can tell you that each of the books has worked out a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Emmy, because I didn't really have a deadline, I was just writing it to see if I could and just trying to kind of have fun with it and writing it during my spare time. I, I took a long time. It, it probably mm-hmm. took uh, about a year to write mm-hmm. and it was on and off and I didn't use any kind of real structure at least not at first so there were there was no outline there was no there wasn't even really any kind of story I had in mind but I decided to approach it sort of the same way I approached the strip because I work very autobiographically and mm-hmm. uh, but instead of writing from the adult point of view I thought it might be helpful to write from a kid's point of view my myself as a kid mm-hmm. um, because even though, you know, I can't remember what I did on a daily basis back then, I could, I could kind of recall how I felt. I remember my feelings and my general angst <laughs> and all that um, and what kind of kid I was back then. So I didn't even try and write it from my kid's point of view or anything like that. And, and I know my, my younger daughter was, was that exact age at the time. That, that helps, but yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so, so yeah, so that's that's how I approached Emmy, and the and the story just kind of um, I just wanted to write from that that type of voice, my my voice, and it it just kind of flowed naturally. And then as I kept writing, the story uh, kind of emerged as I went along, and then I then I did start to have more of a formula and a storyline and an ending in mind, and uh, it, it was it was interesting, and it came about very organically. So did you did you do comics when you were a kid about the ideal version of yourself? Which is <laughs> a big part version. of it for those who haven't read it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, for sure. Um, 
I can tell you right now that uh, there was a neighborhood kid who was also very artistic and she and I used to get together after mm. school. I, I remember this from like, I think it was fifth and sixth grade. We used to do this mm-hmm. and we, <laughs> and we created like this whole set of school characters and, and we would, we would write like long form comics after comic and all these <laughs> storylines. I mean, once they're, the, and of course they were the ideal versions of whatever we wanted to be, you know, like the popular kid in high school. And of course they were much older than we were. And, um, and I got, I remember we even had them going on the love boat. <laughs> <laughs> Gavin McLeod. You bet. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Julie McCoy. That's great. I love it. <laughs> I can't remember the exact storyline, but I just remember we wrote about them going on the love boat. <laughs> That is what I'm aging myself now. (laughs) (laughs) Terrific. Oh my gosh. That's great. Oh, that sounds like an epic actually. Oh, it was totally epic. (laughs) I'm sure it was. So, so it's interesting. Uh, you know, the idea, uh, idealized versions of self. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking now of adolescent boys and superheroes, you know, I mean, as an adolescent boy, that was, we were always, well, not we, I mean, I was the only kid in my day. The, um, it was, it was still embarrassing to be found reading, you know, superhero comics among certain kids. And, uh, but you know, I'd read Spider-Man and, you know, imagine, right. You know, that, uh, you know, and then when I sat down to draw comics, it was always those guys because that's who you wanted to be. But, uh, you wanted to go on the love boat. That's a totally different. Well, that was fifth grade. <laughs> love yeah. boat, Dukes and Hazard, you know, but then I grew up and then I got into Star Wars. So. Oh, very cool. Okay. <laughs> then there were lots of inner fantasies there. So. Yeah, sure. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Did you, yeah. well, that's a whole world, that fan oh, yeah. world. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, okay. So I think by this time people are probably wondering, I have so many questions for you. I'm, oh my gosh. And, and, the, uh, one thing that first comes to mind, um, is that, uh, you grew up in Kingston, Pennsylvania, which is not far from Scranton, which okay. is, yeah, actually, uh, I grew up, uh, near Binghamton, New York, oh, sure. uh, which is about an hour and 15 minutes away from Scranton. We used to, uh, when I was a kid, my, um, my best friend's parents both came from Scranton originally. So they would go visit friends and stick me and my buddy in the backseat of the car and send us off to the Scranton mall. I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it was a big, that was a big city for us. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Well, me too. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And and, um, you're in Cleveland now. I don't know what the weather's like in Cleveland at the moment, but um, here, you know, near Scranton, uh, we had snow today and it's like what, April 27th, you know, it's unbelievable. Yeah. So you're not missing much. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's interesting. I was in a youth group um, growing up in uh, in Kingston, Wilkesbury, and um, and there was a chapter from Binghamton. So I think I had oh. uh, a few friends from there. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. We we you know, um, it's it's a small town, and and it, it is what it is. I I love it here. What can I say? My wife is really ticked off about the weather, but uh, <laughs> I, I love it here because I I have so many memories here. You know, oh, so of course. I came back after traveling, and being in different places. But um, anyway, uh, I just thought that was interesting. But so growing up in Kingston, and your your 
drawn to to making art and to drawing and and uh, all of that and comics in particular what kind of comics were in and around you and and did you encounter and and where were there uh i mean th- obviously there's the newspaper and newspaper comic strips but were you um were there still comics on spinner racks when you were a kid and were you was that something you were interested in too well what was that all i mean how did you get into comics in those days Oh, where do I start? Um, let's see. Well, so yes, definitely Spinner Rack comics. Um, I wasn't really into superheroes or comic books like mm-hmm. that. Um, but I can tell you that when I was little, um, I, I have a brother and sister who are um, quite a bit older than me. And they, are not not they, uh, my brother <laughs> had a huge uh, comic book collections, um, especially magazines. Like he used to have all the Archie comics and Mad right. magazines. Huh? And I remember I tell this story during my presentations too. I would I would take a lot of those magazines and I would steal them, take them into my room, forget <laughs> to give them back. My brother would get mad. Um, but not only that, I started to actually deface some of those. Really? Uh, yeah, especially the Archies. Okay. Um, I would I would actually use whiteout and white out the dialogue at my own dialogue. I would really? like change their outfits. I would like change scenarios. Oh um, apparently I needed like a lot of control. I don't, I don't know. But... Wait, wait, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Was it, was it, was it, was there something, I mean, there's almost like a, it sounds like a residual kind of not only control, but a residual kind of anger in that. Right? <laughs> Were you angry at Archie? I, I really wasn't. <laughs> no, no, I just had a lot of fun. I like to make, I, I had such a huge inner world and I like to make up my own stories. And um, I don't know. I think I was just trying to enhance them with more uh-huh. detail and make them better. But, yeah. And he also had um, wonderful collections of comic and thought like comic strip anthologies, like uh, oh. peanuts and BC and, and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. I just devoured everything. Mm-hmm. And I got into comics at a pretty young age that way. I, I really love comic strips. And, um, and I used to just, you know, like most, like most cartoonists of a certain age, you know, we always just, just was so heavily influenced by peanuts Mm -hmm. and I used to draw wood Snoopy and Woodstock over everything and anything. And um, here's, (laughs) here's a funny story. My, my dad, this is, this is pretty wild. This is a great coincidence. My dad actually co-owned a paper supply company. (laughs) (laughs) It was called union paper supply and company. And it was before staples, before all the big box stores. And um, so there wasn't as much competition back then. And, and he just had all of these extra scratch pads lying around and pens and pencils. I mean, I was so spoiled and I would just, you know, draw Snoopy on a piece of scratch pad and then, you know, or half a Snoopy and tear it off and then uh-huh. start again. I was so un- unkind to trees. As a kid growing up, like as a, as a child artist growing up, mm-hmm. <laughs> having a parent who owned a paper supply store. Yeah, that's incredible. Wow. Yeah, because I was, you know, that was always an issue. It was like, where are you going to get your drawing paper from? But uh, because we didn't have photocopy paper in those days, not in my house anyway. Uh, It was like you had to you had to go to the store, a special store. Art supply stores, and this is one of the things about growing up in Binghamton, there were no art supply stores when I grew up, and I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. We had to go to the paint store, local paint store in Binghamton called Collier's, and if you wanted art supplies, you had to get them at the paint store. And so they had an academy 
Sketchpad, which I think are still around. And, uh, uh, you know, pencils. And that's where I first got my first set of inks and didn't know what to do with and <laughs> stuff. But so you were very fortunate. That's great. I mean, uh, yeah, ridiculously know. fortunate. Yeah. <laughs> as long as you didn't run out of pencils, you were you were good to go. No, I'm kind of appalled at myself. You know, <laughs> in hindsight, just like there's so much waste. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well yeah okay but you know we didn't think about it then uh, no uh, no <laughs> so i can't you know blame you for, for no that. and it was great he had this um huge warehouse and so i would my, oh. my dad was one of those um i think rare first generation like mega hands-on dads and mm-hmm. and he would take me to work all the time if i was you know if i didn't have school or on weekends and and i would just run around that warehouse and climb boxes and uh, it was great <laughs> yeah what a great playground i can imagine but it could really was dangerous, but yeah it's a great place to play so uh so you drew snoopy and woodstock so how How's your Snoopy? Well, I'm out of practice. Okay. But it was really, really good during the day. <laughs> yeah. Which Snoopy did you draw? Because there are, you know, multiple Snoopies. There's early Snoopy. There's a 50s Snoopy. There's early 60s and mid 60s Snoopies. And then there's late 60s, 70s Snoopy into, you know, uh, the 80s and 90s. And, and I can tell you my Snoopy is the mid mid to early 60s Snoopy. Mm-hmm. I was definitely uh, mid to late seventies. Mid to late seventies. Yeah. So he's closer to yeah, he's closer to the final version right. of Snoopy with that. With the, he, you know, by that, it's so interesting to think about how Snoopy changed, mm-hmm. because you know, I mean, not only in terms of, I mean, physically and visually, the change in his character is embodied by those changes visually as well. And I, as I understood. From things I've read, Schultz absolutely couldn't stand looking back at the early Snoopies and complained about the long nose and everything. And my gosh, those are the Snoopies I love, you know. <laughs> if you it's grew up with them, then yeah, that's, yeah, them. of and, course. And he gets too, for me, the later Snoopies are just too round and too cute. Because, very bulbous, yeah. Yeah, very bulbous. And he, he's, he, and cuddly, right? Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. Uh, he can't walk on all fours. And I used to love the... You know, that give and take between Snoopy on all fours and then Snoopy doing other Yeah. Movies. I know, I know. But, uh, you know, you got to change, right, as a cartoonist. So it's okay. I love them all. But um, it's yeah. interesting. So you drew the, the mid-'70s Snoopy. And I guess you you were uh, you were a kid in the seventies. So so uh, you drew Snoopy and Woodstock, and Peanuts is like Snoopy and Woodstock are like embedded in your ideal Peanuts world. Yes, I I was uh, I was uh, they were definitely a duo for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are they your favorite characters still, or or just were they then, or well back then? Talk? Yeah, back then they were. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, as an adult, I can look back and, of course, I just, you know, admire the line work and, and mm-hmm. the writing and everything. But as a kid, you know, I just it was just so kid friendly, even if I didn't always get it. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's so one of the things I used to echo the drawings a lot. The drawings are, think, I think, especially for a child, yeah, they're kind of what draw you in, and and then you don't understand necessarily all the jokes. I remember my parents had bought me, um, oh gosh, I can't remember the title of the book, but it was about the theological background of some of Schultz's work, and uh, and my, my parents had bought that book for me, and, and I don't know why, because there's like only a few strips in it, and there's all this other writing, which I did not understand at all. <laughs> I don't know whether my mother was reading it or not. I, I have no idea, but um, 
it was just there, you know, it was one of the, I, I don't know where these books came from. They were just there. And, um, I know I'm embarrassed that I can't remember the name of the book, but anyway, the, the gospel according to peanuts, that's what it was called. Oh, cool. Yeah. It was just laying around and it was a very popular book in the sixties. And I just remember not paying any attention to the words at all, just looking at the comic strips and even still the comic strips, they, I love to look at them, but boy, I didn't understand them at all. And, um, Mm-hmm. Schultz had that capability of appealing to both adults and to kids somehow. And uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of comics do actually. Um, do. Yeah. Although Schultz was probably um, the forerunner in that regard. I wanted to tell you something about one of the, and I've thought about this. Uh, there's something about your art style that I've always found very accessible. That's just like very, it's very open. There's a lot of space in your, in your work. It makes it very easy to, to get into. And I, I've often thought that if I was to hire somebody, uh, you know, in, in my hypothetical, uh, imagination, um, if I was in charge of hiring somebody to draw peanuts characters as adults or as teenagers, I would hire you. <laughs> there's something flattered. yeah well there's something that's and and i and i do mean it as, as a as a real positive as a compliment um if there's something about your style the openness and the space in your style that calls to mind peanuts for me and and um even though you know your characters are very different in their look and everything but then again i look at emmy or some of the characters in there or or even you know in pajama diaries mm-hmm. and there's a quality in there that that harkens back you know it harkens back to you know you mentioned archie before and i can see some of that in you know a little bit of dan DiCarlo, but i can also see peanuts in there and um uh there's just something about your style that's so uh, friendly and accessible that it would, it would, you know, you would, if you, if you didn't have your own Ruben award-winning comic strip, you could do an adult version of, of this, you know, the kid, the peanuts kids grown up. That would be. Oh, how cool. How cool would that be? (laughs) Yeah, it would be pretty cool. I mean, I know other people have done it as a goof, as a parody, but if they were ever to sort of take it, you know, seriously, (laughs) not Mm -hmm. that I hope anybody ever would, but I, I could see you doing that. So, um, as, as, you have grown older and, and perhaps if, if, I don't know if you go back to look at the strip every now and again, um, to refresh your memory or maybe just for fun. Uh, but are there other characters that stand out to you at all as, as, you know, aside from Snoopy and Woodstock as being important or, or strong or, or inspiring in some way? Uh, in the peanuts world. Yeah. 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 I love the character development in each of them because they're so, they're all unique. Um, I think probably the one I would identify with most would be Linus. Mm-hmm. Linus, okay. Definitely. Uh, what yeah. is it about Linus you identify with? Um, and it's strange. It's not a female character. It would be Linus. <laughs> um, okay. I think because he's just such a gentle soul and kind of sensitive and, and you know, kind of in his own world. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And has, you know, kind of has, a, he has a security blanket, and, right. you know, and just like, just needs some comfort. And that's, that's always how I felt as a kid. So I think I always kind of identified myself with him, always aligned myself with him. Yeah, you know, he's kind of like the artistic type. And I mm-hmm. think that um, because I've always identified with Linus, too. And, and, and I just wonder if that's like, an, you know, Linus is a character that is just for artists or people who are, you know, uh, 
intellectually centered. Um, yeah, he's philosophical too. Yeah, he's philosophical. He's he a deep thinker. He is a deep thinker. <laughs> and anybody, I mean, there's a, a certain kind of intelligence to anybody who realizes they need to have a security blanket. Uh, <laughs> you know, some people see it as a weakness, but on the other hand, you know, okay, I know I need this thing. It will get me by. It's not going to do me any harm. It's not like cigarettes or alcohol. It's, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, all that, you know, makes you wonder, though, if Linus grew up and he needed another crutch. I hope it wouldn't be anything like alcohol. But, yeah, uh, you hope it would be a positive crutch. Like, you hope, like art, you know. Like, yeah, art or marathoning or something. You know? Yeah, something along those lines. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wonder. But, yeah, Linus is one of those characters that I think artistic types kind of find uh, themselves mm-hmm. in, at least when they're growing up, right? Oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah, but I, it's interesting, though, um, you, you mentioned, you know, he's not a female character, obviously, and yet you identified with him. Um, I, I, I don't necessarily identify with Lucy, but I find Lucy a fascinating character. And uh, uh, one of my favorites uh, in regard to the strip. And, and it's funny, my wife can't stand her. Uh, you know, <laughs> Lucy she, would be my best friend. She would be your best friend. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm, ve- I'm drawn to very strong types. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah okay. Uh, I can, I can see that, but, uh, you know, that's kind of cool. Um, yeah, she'd always, you know, but on the other hand, you never know when Sn- Lucy's going to do something mean to you too. I know. I know. Maybe that says something about me. Maybe, <laughs> maybe somehow <laughs> something about me needs the, uh, <laughs> oh my, well, you know, but, uh, abuse, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> have you often been betrayed by your your best friends uh no no i <laughs> <laughs> that's a good thing to know thankfully yeah so uh you know um so you talked a little bit about you know schultz's line and uh and again you know referring to his work um and your work um you know and i and i remember like reading on your website uh, that Berkeley Breathed and uh, Linda Berry are two influences as well. Yeah, that huge. Uh, you, huge influences. So it's interesting. So when you think about, you know, how you work and how you draw and when you conceive of comic strips are, I mean, is, is Schultz one of those figures that's in your mind as you, as you, you know, work along? I mean, does he stand out to you at all? Uh, um, exemplar in a way. Oh, for sure. But you know what? I think a lot of it is very subconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just so ingrained. I mean, I, I grew up reading it mm-hmm. uh, throughout my entire childhood and, mm-hmm. um, and probably a, a little beyond that as well. And it's, I think he was the one I aspired to. I, I love the simplicity. Um, mm-hmm. I, I loved, I love the, uh, as uh, we were talking about that Linus becomes philosophical. I, I I mean, that carries over throughout his, you know, a, a lot of his work. And mm-hmm. and that's something I kind of strive for as well. Like, um, you know, having work that maybe has layers or, or mm-hmm. uh, you know, that has a little more depth to it. Mm-hmm. So, sure. But with deceptive simplicity. Mm-hmm. So I think that's just ingrained. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't consciously think about that anymore um i mean i can i can pretty much tell where i get my influences um i mean i could see linda berry in my work just in the fact in so in in the fact that um i wanted to do something that was uh narrative and biographical and mm-hmm. had that diary type mm-hmm. of influence um, i mean that re- she really influenced me in that regard 
um, although our works aren't similar, it's it's it was definitely um, something that influenced me. And Brevid, just like the edginess and the, you know, I'm sure. not nearly as bizarre as he is, but um, but I, you know, I just I always have that in, in the back of my head too. But it's always very subconscious. Yeah, it's at a certain point or another, you're you're your own person, right? It's like thinking right. about your parents. It's, I mean, in a lot of ways, these these influences are like parental figures, and at some point or another, you just become your own person. I can see the the connection between autobiography and Linda Barry, um, but in terms of artwork. Uh, there's like, you know, you're so distant from her in that way. I mean, her work is so, sure. uh, uh, compounded there, you know, crowd, I don't want to say yeah, crowd, it's very, it detailed. Crowd, very detailed and very, you know, a lot of stuff is packed into each panel and mm-hmm. yours is clean, uh, uncluttered, very, very open, which I guess you, you have some background as a graphic designer also, like Jill? <laughs> in a no, way. no. I actually, people think I did graphic design. I, I actually never did. Um, okay. I think for me, part of it is just deadline. I, huh. you know, I've got that. <laughs> well, it's a job. Yeah, know? it's a job. So you kind of have to simplify, simplify things a bit. Right. Right. Um, when and I was stuff. younger, I used to be, uh, I used to get pretty detailed in uh-huh. a lot of my work. But um, I don't know if I've just grown impatient and or just the, just that combined with the deadline, um, I just need to kind of turn my work out a little bit more. But I am very picky about line quality and um, and I, you know, I go over everything <laughs> with a fine tooth comb and and I like, you know, I like to make sure the line quality looks good and stuff like that. I think that's just my nature. Um, I don't think I could um, really replicate uh, Linda Berry, Berry <laughs> if I could, because she's much looser, even though right. her stuff is more detailed. And I, I have a, I have friends who um, work in a much looser fashion, and I, I'm always very jealous of that, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that kind of freedom. Kind of tight and, you know, graphic. And, um, and I probably in another life, I was a graphic designer. But, <laughs> but well, that's, that's just the, that's just what I, um, I don't, I think that's just my nature. That's just how I work. And I, I stopped trying to fight that a long time ago. Yeah. Well, and it makes, it makes sense again. And you know, that's what you find. One of the things you find out about yourself as you work, uh, the more work you do is, is, uh, what is m- more and more true to you. And, uh, and, you know, absolutely. I mean, your, your style feels absolutely authentic to you and, uh, you know, very, organic in in that way so um it it must be you know revealing of the inner person as well and uh and you know you've talked a little bit about control (laughs) (laughs) that's part of it too you know um it shows up i i kind of have a similar nature i'm very attracted to um you know styles that uh, a wider you know wide range of styles whether you're talking about somebody like george harriman or even will henry who who work with pen and work very very loosely Yeah, uh, and I, yeah, and I wish I could do that, but I can't. And, I know, uh, same. <laughs> you know, I've got a, uh, and I find that the older I get too, I, I'm, you know, last time I was uh, I was talking to Steve Conley about uh, some great comic book artists who who streamlined their work as they went along, like people like Alex Toth or Mike Mignola, um, who edit out, you know, a lot of stuff. And, and I find that when I'm reading, I respond to the, not only the discipline it takes to, uh, you know, remove all, all the excess and leave what's essential, but also the, the elegance of the, the intelligence 
and the elegance of thought that goes into that when it, especially when it's so well done, like in somebody like those two people, um, you know, there, there isn't, um, I, I find something very pleasing in connecting to that thought process. And, uh, and the same thing is true when I look at your work too. Um, you know, I, I, I enjoy connecting to the process of thinking that goes along with finding the most direct and simplified way to convey a message that sometimes it is very, uh, that's, that's very complex. Yeah. It, it, yeah. I, I, I think my secret is I just don't think about it that much. I just, <laughs> I just do what is instinctive and, uh-huh. I, and actually to be honest, um, it's it's been an interesting journey with um, with writing comics because I've actually really come to love the writing process mm-hmm. um, almost more than I do the artistic process. Really? Wow. Really? Yeah. And that's that's uh, and that's true of both um, writing the comic strip and doing the books. I've, I find it very freeing, and I'm not I'm not quite sure why that is. I think I think I've always been a storyteller, and yeah. I've and I've always done art, but um, something, something kind of turned over uh-huh. as I became an adult. And, and part of it probably happened when I was writing for American Greetings too. Um, uh-huh. when I first started doing card writing, um, I started to really enjoy, uh, the process of writing gags mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, um, and I, you know, and I, and I was okay to let go of doing the illustration most of the time, unless it was like my own card line, or I was really particularly fond of, of a gag and, wanted to illustrate it um i was i was more i felt more proud and accomplished of the writing i did that's really interesting i i you know i think if you talk to well you know i talk about the the writing a lot too um writing is it's a different kind of exercise but um you are a storyteller and so that's natural uh you know the the verbal aspect of it um it's kind of interesting too i wonder if a, a little bit of it is is maybe that because you've drawn your whole life uh, and always put an emphasis maybe on that or identify self-identified as an artist, um, maybe in some ways you kind of took it for granted or it became something that is just so so much a part of you that writing seemed like something new and and focusing on it was something else. But but it's interesting as as you say that I wonder uh, well maybe so maybe you're going to find yourself writing prose novels or something. I wonder. I I do when I have time. I don't I don't usually have time, but when I do have time, I think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about doing other kinds of books um, and not necessarily illustrating them. Um, it, and it could be even a picture book or anything else. Yeah, maybe adult prose. I'm not quite sure, or even young adult. Um, well- you know, people are having all kinds of second careers, you know, past, you know, 50, past 60. You never know, right? You, you know, there could be a second career for you there. Uh, right. right. And I and I love the editing process as well. I'm one of those weird types who, you know, gets excited about those red lines. Well, maybe not excited, but <laughs> I, I don't dread them. <laughs> not as much as I used to. Well, so. editing is where it all you know, all the streamlining happens. And and this is here, there's a difference again between, you know, somebody who can just sort of throw their work out there, throw caution to the wind and bear themselves, you know, in that way, in that very free way. And then there's people like us who have to go back and kind of control everything. Editing is something that, um, I, I, I think people of, of, you know, that kind of mindset, uh, such as we're describing find very, it's, it can be very satisfying. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I love, I actually love rewrites. Not all the time, but um, as, as long as it's not too extensive. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, to me, it's almost like solving a puzzle. Um, and I'm, and that's both with the strips and with, mm-hmm. with, uh, with the book. Well, I, I didn't enjoy rewriting that second book four or five times, but, <laughs> but um, more like tweaking. I like tweaking. I like going back and, you know, fitting the pieces together a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was just thinking the, the process of comic strip writing is just, I mean, basically that's what it is. You know, it's like conveying information as quickly as possible, really. You know, um, there's a great quote from uh, Fred Allen, the old radio comedian. He said, uh, brevity is the soul of comedy. And I think about that when I sit down to write a comic strip or something that, that keep it short, keep it sweet, you know, because brevity is the soul of comedy. And in comic strips, there, there's no place other where it's more clear than in a gag strip. Uh, it, it, that whole process just enforces the idea of, of editing on you um, over and over and over again. Yeah, although I, I hate to say this, I like a good challenge, and um, sometimes I like to throw in as many words as I can. <laughs> well, I used to yeah. drive the salespeople crazy because, oh my gosh, I, I would get so wordy, and I've, I've really come a long way since, but, <laughs> but uh, oh my gosh, um, but sometimes, I don't know, I think it's because, um, maybe it's because I did do a lot of card writing and like, I just wanted to kind of rebel against that. Sure. Oh I don't God. know. Yeah. But I, well, sometimes I like to play with that. I like to play with words. I like to, you know, uh, I like to throw in, I, I have to, I have to really, you know, draw the line, but once in a while I like to kind of mix it up, have maybe a longer, you know, a longer gag. And well, kind of you're it. familiar with the old, you know, that old story about Ernie Bushmiller and, and uh, Charles Schultz. Do you know that little story? That, that, okay, I at might. a national National Cartoonist Society uh, award dinner or something, or um, I'm not sure the exact situation, but uh, it was it was at a podium. Ernie Bushmiller stood up, and uh, of Ernie Bushmiller of Nancy stood up and uh, gave a little speech about the use of language in comics. And of course, you know nobody was a greater editor in in regard to any of the aspects of of comic strips than Ernie Bushmiller. And, uh, and so he gave this, this little speech and, uh, and he spoke out against verbiage in comics and too much verbiage in comics. And this is just at a time when Schultz is really peaking and really beginning to take off, you know, maybe it was the early sixties or something. And, uh, so Schultz's response to that was to go back home and write a comic strip that was filled with more words than anything (laughs) anything he had uh, ever done before. And, uh, you know, which is great because I, I don't, I don't like formulas, you know, and and there's a discipline about comic strips, but Absolutely. You know, when you're you're sitting down to, to do a piece and, uh, you know, it works for it. Hey, you got you go with it, whether it's a lot of words or it's not. <laughs> that seems as good a place as any to call an end to part one of our interview with Terry Liebenson. Part two will pick up right where that left off and uh, will be available in a couple of weeks. So be on the lookout for it. You know, that reminds me, there is a wonderful book out. It came out last year. It's called How to Read Nancy, and it's by Paul Karasik and Mark Newgarden. And it is an 
absolutely terrific deconstruction, if you will, of a single comic strip by Ernie Bushmiller from Nancy, from the comic strip Nancy. If you really want to see the elements of the comic art distilled into some very simple and straightforward uh, steps, this is the book for you. It is, it is really remarkable the way they go into Bushmiller's work in detail and reveal the discipline that was necessary to create such a simple comic strip day in and day out over the course of however many years Bushmiller worked on Nancy. It was many, many years. It really is terrific because if you're going to make comics and um, you are interested in, or, or if you're just interested in the making of comics, it really illuminates the process in such detail and in a, and in a way that, that is so comprehensive. I've never seen seen the like of it before. It also calls to mind that, that Schultz must have gone through many of the same steps. I'm sure he did when he was, he was working, and he was as strong an editor and as, um, as disciplined in his craft as Bushmiller was, but he took that discipline and went someplace else with it. And uh, it just goes to show that as, as much as you can sort of inform your work with discipline and constrain it, maybe, uh, build parameters around it, there's also, you know, an, still enormous flexibility within the comic strip form for a variety of different approaches and so you know if you read Nancy and you uh, and that's one kind of kid strip and then you read Peanuts that's another kind there there are two you know almost diametrically opposed uh, approaches to children's strips still they were both coming from a very disciplined place a, a thorough understanding of the craft and a great reverence for editing in both their work but I think Schultz was probably a little more giving it a little more flexible, uh, allowing for, uh, you know, some of those wonderful phrases that uh, both Linus is known for uh, and uh, periodically Charlie Brown as well. So anyway, How to Read Nancy. Check it out. I think you'll find it interesting. Part two of our interview with Terry Liebenson, Rubin Award winning cartoonist of the comic strip Pajama Diaries comes up in a couple of weeks. So hang in there. We pick up right where we left off, and it's uh, terrific. There's still lots to talk about, lots more ground to cover. So uh, I hope you'll come back in a couple of weeks with that. And following that, we're going to have, we're going to dive deep into the Schultz Sea uh, with Lex Fajardo, the uh, cartoonist of the webcomic Kid Beowulf and uh, one of the chief editors at the Schultz Studio. So uh, look forward to that. I think um, there's lots to, lots to come here on Blockhead. Uh, in the meantime, be sure to check out jeffgrogan.com, G-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N.com, and uh, check me out on Instagram, at GroganJeff. And for now, I will say so long, along with Betsy, and uh, hope you have a wonderful spring, a wonderful May Day, wonderful Cinco de Mayo, and uh, we will see you in a couple of weeks. And um, thanks for listening. Thank you.